0: I was practicing law from a house that only I occupied. And wouldn't you know, I started hearing voices. They had names, they had faces that made me think my life was in severe danger and that people were plotting to kill
1: me. Yet felt very real to me. Green lights and blue skies are on their way. Yeah, they're on their way. Hey everybody, welcome to Crosstalk Podcast. We are here in South Florida. Crosstalk is the number one recovery podcast where people share their life stories and how they got their lives back. Please don't forget to click that bell notification. That way you don't miss an episode. And if you like the episode, please let us know by liking it and sharing it, of course, because that just lets the Google algorithm or YouTube algorithm, know that, you know, you like what you're watching and we can share it with others that may need to connect. It's not Google algorithm. I know. <laughs> here with me today is Sarah Goodman, who I met three years ago. She is such a great friend, Practically Family. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you. I'm so excited to be
0: here and I'm so proud of you for this. Absolutely. I remember when we've been talking about doing a podcast that never got off the ground.
1: This is- <laughs> There's still hope for us there is now the equipment hope. is here, right? <laughs> exactly. So we can make it work. This is so great, though. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So, so tell me a little bit about what the beginning looked like for you. What do you want to share about kind of your childhood and and how you get got on this journey?
0: <laughs> how long do you have?
1: Yeah. Um,
0: uh-huh. I grew up in Philadelphia. I'm the oldest of two. I had. Loving parents and really anything I could have ever needed or hoped for. That all changed for me at 14. My mom got really sick and was diagnosed with cancer and passed away very shortly thereafter. Um, Thank you. So, you know, it was wonderful until it wasn't. And it wasn't even that it got so terrible after she passed. But I think her... Loss and her disease and everything we went through during that period really changed Mm -hmm. our family makeup and how we all related to each other, how we all adapted and developed, because we really had a void. And to fill that was impossible.
1: Um, So we coped the best ways we could. Um, What did that look like? What would you say some of the things that stick out to you today are?
0: Yeah, so I um, looked to my dad as the model of sort of how to move forward. And his way to move forward was to stick his head down and keep moving one foot in front of the other. So I really modeled that. I remember therapy being offered to me mm-hmm. and I was very against it. I couldn't tell you why, I had no prior experience with it, mm-hmm. but to me it was a disruption. And disruptions for whatever reason were negative in my mind.
1: Okay. Um, not shame based. Just not at all. You just didn't think you needed it. Yeah,
0: it just was like another like another thing I need to focus on. Getting into college, I was a swimmer at the time. I still am a swimmer, but yeah. I was a competitive swimmer at the time. So it was like getting to practice, competing. You know, things like that, those Mm -hmm. were my goals. And I viewed it almost as a distraction or just an obstacle to to accomplishing what I wanted to do.
1: That makes sense. I wish I'd done it. (laughs) (laughs) I paid for it later in life. I mean, how did, um, is that a regret of yours? Absolutely.
0: I wish I could go back in time and shake that little girl and be like, Talking helps.
1: <laughs> well, perspective I, helps. Okay, good to know. Good to know. I ask that question at the end of the podcast. I say, what would you tell your, for you, your 13, 14-year-old <laughs> yeah. self, you know? So that's...
0: It's a great... I mean, it, it's so important. And obviously, we all have the perspective when time passes and you yeah. can't, things do differently. You just adapt and cope the best you can. Um, but... I really wish I could have just told her to like top, stop, take a breath. Right. Grieve, like be sad. It's okay. It's yeah. important because if you don't feel these things now, it's not going to go away. Right. It's just going to manifest itself differently later
1: on. Yeah, that makes sense. So what did it what what happened? What turned you to the path of using substances? Yeah,
0: so It was really a time of exploration for me, I would say. Um, Our family roles were shifting. So I, I think, naturally became more of a parental figure Mm -hmm. for my brother um, out of necessity because I had to be a model of something. Um, And my dad was still working, and he always kind of financially supported us. Um, and my mom was more of the emotional support. So she would remember to pack lunches, sign permission slips, things like that. So I became, you know, not just a daughter to my father, but also that reminder of we have to get X, Y, Z done. You know, we should make sure there's dinner on the table each night. You know, I started cooking. I think my dad's fondest memory of that time was me making dinner while he and my brother were at like baseball practice. I mean yeah
1: you're 14 you're in high school so you're you know young adult. Yeah so like I was absolutely capable of doing
0: it I just hadn't ever done it before so Mm -hmm. when he was able to come home one day and there actually be food on the table that was big and he was very grateful. Um, So with that though came just new dynamics within the family so it was like hmm, can I, like, get away with using this credit card to order something for myself? Like, how long will it take for Dad to notice? (laughs) Can I, like, start staying out later? And, ooh, what if I, like, take a little bit of alcohol from his liquor cabinet? Will he notice? More often than not, he didn't. Um, Or he did, but it was after the damage was done. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, initially, it was just, it was mostly alcohol. Um, and it was parties and it was on the weekends and it really didn't impact school or participation in swimming. Maybe I'd miss a weekend practice, okay. but it felt very age appropriate and it felt like I was in line with my peers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was fun. It was an escape. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, I just kept enjoying it for a really long time. I can relate to that. <laughs> so that was the problem. <laughs> Um, you know, I ended up going away for college, which was really important for me. I felt like I needed to kind of spread my wings and get out of the Philadelphia area and away from my dad and my brother. And college was amazing. (laughs) I had great friends. I ended up swimming competitively there. I went to Brown and again, like there was more experimentation there. I was introduced to cocaine, though I don't think I did it then, but it was around. Mm-hmm. Um, I would smoke pot on occasion, but like, again, not really my thing. Right. But we would go to parties and you can go to parties during the week. Mm-hmm. So my drinking definitely picked up um, while I was in college. But again, I still had those guardrails in place. I was still making practices. I was still able to, you know, go to class and do well in school, all of that. Um, Once I graduated, I moved to New York, which was like a playground if I thought college was fun. New York is like, oh my God.
1: New York is so special. Oh,
0: yes. (laughs) I lived in a Tribeca walk-up with four guys. And the reason I did that was because (laughs) I graduated in 2009 from college, so the economy was awful. I had gotten a job as a legal analyst was the title. I was making minimum wage and they like phrased the position such that they could get out of paying us overtime. Right. So like getting by by the skin of my teeth. And these guys were friends of some of my college friends. Some of them swam at Dartmouth. So I was friendly with them. Um, and I didn't know what to expect. I went from living with eight girls in college to I can't imagine. all of these boys. <laughs> um, I had a windowless closet with a fake wall. Okay. It was like $1,200, which was way more than I could afford.
1: That's New York.
0: But it was so fun. That's actually Um, really
1: affordable for Tribeca. (laughs) Well, trust me. Trust me.
0: (laughs) I was begging and pleading. I think I was like, take $100 off my rent. I'll clean. (laughs) I'll scrub the bathrooms. Um, but yeah, so, you know, from there, it was just, again, it was okay. Now I had a job that I would want to show up to and I wouldn't show up there drunk or anything, but I had a lot of free time and New York has endless possibilities. So if I wasn't going out with the guys I lived with, there was always someone else I could go out with. Right. Um, tried cocaine there for the first time, got my first taste, enjoyed it. Couldn't afford it. Mm. So it, it, became, it probably would have become a worse habit had I had the money to do it. I just didn't. Okay. Um, that
1: might be a good guardrail.
0: Exactly. Seriously. I mean, yeah. just, just the financial limitation. Um, from there, I, I ended up working at that legal analyst job for two years, and then I went to law school. Um, and law school just, you know, at some point, it no longer became drinking when I was going out. It became a couple glasses of wine at home. If I had hard alcohol, a couple of drinks. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter. But every day was ending with a beverage. Yeah. Um, Again, it still felt really normal to me. I had yeah. a lot of, you know, so I thought at the time. I had so much stress. This was how I unwinded. Everyone else was doing it too.
1: I was a part of that same culture in New York. You know, happy hour after work hard, play hard kind of mentality. Yeah. And it was just, we were all having wine after after dinner yeah. or with dinner or whatever. Yeah. And, I mean, I moved on to harder substances, but this is about <laughs> you, so we'll stick to your story. Yeah. Um,
0: I, you know, at some point, I, I kind of flew through those three years of law school, and it became time for me to take the bar. And I couldn't sit for the bar in... Pennsylvania and New York, um, at the same time I could take New York or New Jersey or Pennsylvania or New Jersey. And it was like how the days fell. And ultimately I decided it was like time to come home. I kind of viewed this time away from Philadelphia and my immediate family as my escape. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, things were changing and it was time for me to become responsible and return home. So I returned home and it turns out practicing law is even more stressful than law school. (laughs) It's funny how they don't tell you that. Um, But so again, you know, the the after work stuff didn't stop. Um, And at no point did this feel, like I said, like really out of control. Mm. It just was a constant. and It was just what I did. Um, Fast forward to about three years into me practicing I had just started a new job at a different firm, and I had a serious health scare. I had a brain aneurysm rupture.
1: Wow.
0: Um, and did that impact your drinking? <laughs> it did quite a bit, um, and it wasn't in terms of stopping. It didn't curb <laughs> my drinking. Um, I went the other direction. Um, I had an appointment with my neurologist like shortly after I was let out of the ICU and basically they give you like a sl- a sheet of paper and it has everything in the world that you can't touch right. medications things like that um, and really it's anything that heightens your blood pressure so cocaine was on that list um, and other substances that are considered uppers alcohol wasn't on that list okay. I had just turned thirty and I remember my dad asking the neurologist if it would be okay if I had some champagne to celebrate getting out of the hospital and this birthday. And the neurologist was like, yeah, of course. And it turns out he's a wine connoisseur and speaks on the topic. Um, so it just, again, it still felt really normal.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but unfortunately, I quickly realized um, during my recovery, I couldn't work for about three months. Um, and I was just home alone, so bored watching TV, hurt my head, reading, hurt my head. There was a lot of just time that I couldn't fill. And I realized that you could start drinking at any time during the day. Um, and that's really how I filled those three months. Um, vodka became my best friend. Mm. Um, and I continued that way for three years. Um, COVID hit at this point i bought my first house which was supposed to be a really exciting time in my life
1: yeah, huge milestone yeah i so you're so successful though i mean like you're drinking but you're there are extremely no, successful yes, there're no consequences yeah okay that's so um, important to know
0: i had a relationship throughout that aneurysm recovery time and for the next couple years and my drinking definitely heightened through that relationship my partner at the time drank, probably drank more than I did. He was also much larger than I was. Um, but I, I think I was unhappy in that relationship and was using alcohol as a way to cope, okay. um, which is not to justify it or take the responsibility of the drinking off me. But that's how but you felt. 100%. Right. Um, so once that relationship truly severed and it was just me in this house with things I th- Should have been celebrated, but celebrating, but had no joy, didn't feel like I could celebrate. It was just me and a bottle of vodka. And that's a really miserable place to be. And that reflected how I felt inside. Mm. Um, So once the pandemic, you know, really kind of hit and sent people home, I was practicing law from a house that only I occupied. Um, and wouldn't, you know, I started hearing voices. No way. (laughs) (laughs) And these were not voices of friendly people who wanted to hang out with me and my friend vodka. These were really scary voices, um, that made me think my life was in severe danger and that people were plotting to kill me.
1: It's like a paranoia kind of thing.
0: Yeah. And it felt, but it felt very real to me. Like I had, they had names, they had faces, um, And things escalated to such a degree that I actually called the police at one point Um, because I, again, thought it was real. And at this point, my family, I think, had been concerned, but was growing increasingly concerned. Mm. Um, And I was 302, which means like a psychiatric hold. Okay. Um, And they didn't know at that point. That it was alcoholism. They thought maybe I was schizophrenic. They knew something was wrong.
1: Yeah, because voices is usually tied to...
0: I knew something was really wrong. So I went in kicking and screaming. I didn't know. They told me that I was just going in to have a checkup that my neurologist scheduled. Apparently, you don't need a police escort when that happens. But I had one. Still didn't. (laughs) still not really getting it. Um, I was shocked when there was no mask for me to wear in this psychiatric hospital.
1: Um, but was so this psychiatric hospital? Was this like the moment? Did, did this? No, nothing. No. Okay.
0: I was like, why am I here? So this like, was what a did moment they of do? clarity. No, it was not at all. Um, from there, I, I think they quickly realized that I was not in the right place, actually, but it was because I needed to be somewhere to manage my withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I switched over into the general hospital, and from there was sent straight to my first rehab. Um, and so that no intervention
1: just: no, straight from it was hospital to rehab.
0: bed to rehab. You're not uh-huh. allowed to go home. You can't like pack your own bag. Good luck.
1: And at this point, did you think I might be an alcoholic? No, I had no idea what that word was. (laughs) Well, I I mean, (laughs) I remember when I met you, you didn't think you were an alcoholic.
0: But no, like (laughs) truly no idea. I was like, God, why is this happening to me? Right. I was very much in like victimization mode, could not see how this was supposed to help me, how this was a chance. None of that. Um... So I got through and I'd like to think I learned something in those 28 days, but you know, I left with no aftercare plan. I think they knew I was so far gone. I was still telling everyone that my neighbors were trying to kill me. Like it was so wrapped up in me Mm -hmm. and my narrative and how I was trying to control everything. Um, I lasted about a year between that rehab stint and my next one
1: um
0: I I think I had no one fooled but you know I would at least appear to be sober in front of family and you know close friends who knew what I went
1: through and you were working yep the
0: whole time okay um and your
1: work life didn't suffer there were no consequences again nope okay
0: So I would, you know, I'd have like a friend or two that I would drink with and I would always drink at my house, but no one really knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. That quickly, you know, deteriorated as it must, um, because I was living a lie and I, I just don't think you can continue living that way without something combusting. Um, so I ended up back in rehab again, the same program I had been previously. Um, and while I was there, I met Corey actually.
1: Oh, yeah. And our very own Corey Rabin, <laughs> who is a crosstalk host. And the reason why I'm also a crosstalk host. <laughs>
0: yeah, Corey's the best. Yeah. Um, and I was really lucky because Corey saw something in me. I don't know why. I don't know how. But he really took the time to try and get to the root of what was actually happening with me. And how I thought my life would be manageable if I stayed sober and in retrospect you know I just wasn't there I didn't want to give up drinking I felt like this was unfair and I was going to do this kicking and screaming and I was gonna be miserable because I really was miserable it's not fun to go back and forth between treatment centers. Right. It's not fun when you yourself are not willing to change and people are telling you to change and that you have to change. You, you just can't see it. Um, so after, after that stint, I got home, I lasted like two weeks and I started hearing voices again because I was drinking again. And you know now I understand that I was going through alcoholic-induced psychosis. Um, and my dad and my brother at this point had contact with like an outpatient program, I think through the rehab center and my brother had been in touch with this woman and this woman knew I wasn't sober, sober at all. Um, so it was recommended that I go to detox and I, at this point had no idea what detox was. Like I was still very unfamiliar with alcoholism despite having gone to rehab Two different times because I wasn't open to it I I didn't want to learn right um so I went to detox and it turns out it's much like rehab (laughs) (laughs) you turn over all of your belongings and then you're just cared for basically for a week um watched cared for. exactly medicated meals are made for you we had some groups in the detox I was at but you know mostly it's like you you just sleep and you're supposed to get better Mm -hmm. um and I was presented with an option by the the head of that facility, a couple of days into my stay, and it was, you can go down to Florida, and you're gonna stay there, and you're not you're <laughs> not getting out at 28 days. Like you're staying there, and you're figuring out what this is gonna look like, um, and, and navigate being sober for real. Um, Or you can go back and you can continue to live the life that you think you're living. uh, But your family won't have anything to do with you. Um, And I was really, really tempted to do that.
1: Mm.
0: And my family means everything to me. And my brother and my dad are incredibly close and have been incredibly supportive. Um, But I really was about to give up those relationships for alcohol. Um, There was kicking, there was screaming, there was crying. I think there were curse words. I mean, I was not proud of how I behaved that day. But eventually something the group leader or the, the head of the program said really stuck with me. And it was, you know, essentially... I was you six years ago. I was completely broken. Everything in my life was upside down. And I can actually say I am happy. I've found purpose. I got married. I have meaning. Give it a try. You have nothing to lose. And isn't, you know, Florida at least somewhat attractive. This point
1: Pennsylvania was like miserable. The weather was cold that was the same timing for me. They're like, and you can live in Florida. <laughs> and I was like, okay, take me to Florida. It's November. I'm emaciated and I'm for a reason.
0: Yeah. There, and I don't know why I said, yes, I'm so grateful sitting here today that I did, but, um, it got, it got through to me. And that was like the first time I was like, okay, I'm tired. And uh, I can't do this anymore.
1: So the lights are starting to flicker. Flicker. Okay. When did the When did the um, f- switch flip? <laughs> when did the switch flip? Um, flip switch.
0: I mean, I think. I'm battling with this. <laughs> I think you were probably there for it. I mean, you were incredibly instrumental. I remember meeting you and eventually timidly asking you to be my sponsor. And I think even when we were going through the steps, I was like, this just doesn't apply to me. Like, <laughs> I'm not supposed to be here. Like I'm waiting for the helicopter to like come through and me to be like air out
1: of here. I'll never forget it.
0: Like <laughs> I, I, you can't make it up.
1: We were sitting in a group room together <laughs> yes. and uh, yeah. And, and I was just like, okay girl and
0: that was the craziest like I really believed it like I said it with such conviction Mm -hmm. Um, but I think I think after sharing with you some of my experiences and you looking at me and just shooting it to me straight being like that is not normal like that doesn't (laughs) happen you don't get a manicure and leave in an ambulance. And I was like, what? <laughs> I thought that's normal. That's my favorite story, like, actually. It's just like, it. look, yeah. it is what it is. Um, but yeah, at some point I was like, all right, I'm going to give this a try. You were a huge inspiration, obviously. But it, Florida was interesting because I finally saw people actually living sober and They didn't seem to suck and it seemed like they had really great lives that I couldn't see before. I I thought giving up alcohol meant giving up a social life, giving up, you know, the ability to go out and do things and experience things because I had become so
1: used to having that crutch. Now, isn't it funny how it's kind of the opposite? Absolutely. Without alcohol, it's like experiencing and doing and everything. And when you're, you know, in it, you think
0: That's what you need to
1: survive. Oh, my God. All the
0: days I wasted, like hungover in bed, like you don't have to live that way. Right. It's like no one ever told me.
1: (laughs) I know. Someone said to me something once that that has to do with this. They, They turned around to me and they were like, you know, you don't have to be sick anymore. And I was like, it's something like a light bulb. Something went off. And I was like, oh, my God. Like I can be a healthy person and like not be a victim. And be in charge of my own life and and I feel like, you know, it's the best lesson to learn that you don't Absolutely. have to be there anymore.
0: Yeah. You don't have to be a prisoner to yourself. Mm. I mean, it's just it is. It's eye-opening and sobriety has opened up so many doors and I'm so grateful for that. Mm-hmm. But it is it's just I I didn't I didn't want to believe it.
1: So I tell was in me denial. more about your process. Like you had this Finally, this moment where you're like, okay, maybe I am. And now what does recovery kind of look like for you? Sure.
0: Um, so, I mean, I look, it, I went in kicking and screaming. It took a lot of really intense therapy um, and harsh therapy, right? Like it wasn't lovey-dovey or flowers and rainbows. Mm. Um, I really had to take accountability for some of my own actions and some of the situations I created for myself. Um, Once I was able to do that and started actually working a program, I think for me, that was when I I just wanted more. It was that same motivation that came up earlier in my life where I just wanted to one foot in front of the other, keep moving forward. Mm. Um, Now I just, I wanted more of life. I wanted more good things to happen. I wanted to take control and see a real shift. Um, And you know, today it's just, it's still a work in progress. Yeah. It's paying attention every day to how I'm feeling and how I'm reacting to things. It's being aware of things and situations that are in my control and things that are outside of my control and accepting that.
1: And so what would you say are like the huge things that you're doing differently today as opposed to before?
0: I am able to set boundaries. I had not been able to do that previously. I can relate. (laughs) I no longer let people walk all over me. Um, And it's not that people were walking all over me before and I was just sitting back and letting it happen. But I think I invited some of that behavior Mm -hmm. based on how I valued myself and what I was showing the world that I was about um i think too just generally i've I've learned to be open and that it's okay to talk about my feelings and it's okay to tell people i'm not okay it's frightening it's really scary (laughs) it's just asking for help it's i've never been good at it Mm. um i like to be the one that's in control of course Sound, yeah, right? I mean, like it sounds familiar. It could. Be,
1: I'm sure so many people can relate to that. Yeah. And you're a high achiever. You've always yeah. been a, a high achiever. I mean, you stepped up to the plate with your family. You stepped up to the plate with, I'm sure, living with those guys in college. I'm <laughs> sure you took on a let me run this house role. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, I, I feel very comfortable when I'm taking care of other people's problems. Mm-hmm. I do not like having to hit pause and look at myself and say, okay, what, what Sarah problems do I have to focus on? And who can I ask for help to fix them or solve them or, or work on them? It, It doesn't even have to be a solution. It's just, how can I better myself? What can I do today to make sure that I am being the best version of myself, that I'm showing up for the people I love and care about, and also giving myself space to maybe not be the best version of myself oh, right. because I need a break. Yeah. I just think it's really important and it's a balance.
1: Mhm. I, I mean, I agree. I think it's it's hard, but do you feel like your recovery has evolved almost and changed from like first year to second year to third year?
0: Yeah, no. First year it was like let me get to one year. Let me <laughs> let me like prove to everyone that I can do this. And then like we'll see. No pressure. Um, and then I think the more often you, you practice it and you, you go through just living your life with that kind of purpose. Um, you know, it evolves and it changes and you take stock of things differently and you start viewing things differently. Mm. Um, and you're learning and growing While staying sober, but the sobriety piece, the actual not picking up a drink has less and less to do with it. Mm -hmm. And it's more about how can I take stock of myself today? What do I like about my life? What do I maybe not like so much? And if I'm identifying things in that other column, what steps can I take to fix it?
1: Right. Just also shifting your perspective, being more self-aware. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely.
1: I mean, perspective is like a huge part of this, mm-hmm. you know, before not having the awareness and then shifting to, oh God, I can do these things and my life is better and I'm looking at things differently.
0: Absolutely. I think for me before it was, what don't I have? That was, that was my barometer mm. because if I don't have those things, I want to work to get them. Um, whereas now I can just wake up and be like, I'm grateful I had a bed to sleep in last night. I'm mm-hmm. grateful there's a roof over my head. Yeah. There's running water. I can brush my teeth.
1: Gratitude is huge. Mm-hmm. So, has spirituality played a role in your in your recovery?
0: Absolutely. So, I was raised Jewish, um, but I've not been the best practicing Jew, okay. especially in my adult life. Um, so, I think I struggled with the idea of a higher power um, for a while. Yeah. Um, but once I was able to identify what my higher power was, you know, that's been a big game shifter for me, because now I can just trust that whatever is meant to happen is going to happen. There's, there's not. I'm not part of it. Mm. Something much greater than me, than you, is at play here exactly, and having some faith in that it makes everything else all seem really manageable
1: yeah I, I I feel the same way
0: yeah like once you give that up and it's like all right I'm not in charge I'm not in control yeah you're good
1: so is there anything else you want to share with everyone any <laughs> I feel like I gave you everything. Okay. I, I feel like you gave a lot too. I'm, I'm appreciative. Um, so let me go back to that question that I like to ask people at the end is, you know, what would you have told your younger self? And you kind of shared a little bit about that. But, you know, is that all you would tell your younger self? What, what if you can really spell it out for us?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I would have loved to have hugged that little girl and told her... To stop worrying that she is enough and that the future is bright. And she just has to take a deep breath, believe, and do the next right thing.
1: Amazing. I love that. Mm. Okay, I'll, we'll step out of the circle. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Ooh.